Hey folks, coming in hot with a little ad uh, for myself in my upcoming book. If you like this podcast, you are definitely going to like the book I wrote based on it. Unruly Figures, 20 Tales of Rebels, Rule Breakers, and Revolutionaries covers several people that I've never covered on the podcast. From queens of piracy in the Mediterranean to rebellious artists in New York to aboriginal resistance leaders in Tasmania, this book is full of rebellious folks you may have never heard of. It comes out wherever books are sold on March 5th. Pre-order it now. Link is in the show notes. Hey everyone, welcome to Unruly Figures, the podcast that celebrates history's greatest rule breakers. I'm your host, Valerie Clark, and today I'm going to be covering the man known as the hero of two worlds, the Marquis de Lafayette. You might have heard of Lafayette as one of David Diggs' two characters in Hamilton. He's a protagonist of the song Guns and Ships, where Diggs raps at an astounding 6.3 words per second during the quickest verse, which almost doubles the word per minute rate of its closest competitor, Spring Awakening. But there's a very real man behind the impressive lyrics. He was a military leader in two revolutions, fought against absolute monarchy, against slavery, and against imperialism. And today, I'm going to cover his life. Before we get into his story, for a full transcript of today's episode, head over to unrulyfigures.substack.com. That's U-N-R-U-L-Y-F-I-G-U-R-E-S dot S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. In addition to the full transcript, you can also get ad-free episodes, a bibliography of my research, photos of everyone I'm covering, discussion threads, and so much more. So check it out. Alright, let's hop back in time. The The Marquis de Lafayette was born on September 6, 1757 in Chavignac, France, and given the impressively long name Marie-Joseph-Paul-Yves-Roch-Gilbert de Mautier, Marquis de Lafayette. I'm just going to call him Lafayette for the rest of this. He was the next in a long and noble line of military distinction. The family was among the most distinguished noble families in France, and according to legend, one of his ancestors had fought beside Joan of Arc, and another of his ancestors had personally acquired the crown of thrones and the crown of thorns during one of the crusades. Unfortunately, on August 1st, 1759, Lafayette's father was killed in a battle against the English in the Seven Years' War. Obviously, since he was less than two years old at the time, he never really remembered his father. He grew up really resenting the English over this death, and spoiler alert, it really colored a lot of his decisions in life. Lafayette's mother was so depressed after the death of her husband that she left her young son to be cared for by his grandmother, Madame de Chavagnac. She moved to Paris to be taken care of by her father and grandfather. Unfortunately, we don't know much about the next nine years of Lafayette's life. He grew up with his grandmother, he probably got some education, um, but really things the historical record skips ahead until 1768 when Lafayette was finally summoned to Paris to be reunited with his mother. She lived by then in, a par- in apartments at Luxembourg Palace. He was going to be educated at the University of Paris and then was eventually enrolled in a program that trained the future Musketeers de Roi or the Black Musketeers, the king's personal guard, basically. Unfortunately, both his mother and grandfather died in April 1770, leaving him an orphan. Another uncle died later that summer, and Lafayette was suddenly a very wealthy 12-year-old. Altogether, he had an annual income around 145,000 livres per year. I tried to do a calculation of how much that would be in modern currency, but it's it's a little complex because France has had several di- or had a few different currencies since the 1770s, 
So I used a historic calculator that does an exchange rate from French livre to British pound using a historic ledger from 1777. According to that, Lafayette's 145,000 livres was worth about 19,385 British pounds per year in the 1770s. I calculated for inflation that was worth roughly 2.2 million British pounds a year in 2021, which is worth about 3 million US dollars. So again, a wealthy child. Uh, just a year later, he was commissioned as an officer in the Musketeers with the rank of sub-lieutenant. As you can probably guess, because he was literally 13 years old, his role was mostly ceremonial and he continued going to school. Uh, Lafayette was presented at the French Royal Court in early 1774 and it did not go well. By some accounts, Lafayette was an awkward teenager. He apparently wasn't considered very handsome. I guess he had red hair and a large nose, which apparently is bad. Um, and he was quite tall for the time as well, about five foot nine. Worst of all, they say he was a bad dancer. And apparently the newly arrived Marie Antoinette laughed at him and openly mocked him with her friends. Unsurprisingly, after this, Lafayette was never fond of court and was known to avoid it whenever he could. On Monday, April 11th, 70, 1774, when he was just 16 years old, Lafayette was married to Marie-Adrienne de Noailles, who was just 14 at the time. We know the exact date because a plaque above the entrance of their house on Rue Saint-Honoré com commemorates the wedding. The home was very close to the center of Paris and not too far from where Lafayette had lived with his mother and grandfather. The family was extremely prominent in France as well, and several played important roles in the French court at Versailles, so this was a very advantageous marriage for Lafayette. Despite the reputation of lots of aristocratic arranged marriages, the two were, by at least some reports, pretty happy together. They had four children, though one would die in infancy. Because they were so young when they married, a clause inserted in the marriage contract dictated that the couple would live with Adrian's parents until they were old enough to have their own home. So the first few, or first few years of their marriage were spent in the lavish Hotel de Noailles where Adrian had spent her childhood. And uh, that quote comes from encyclopedia.com. In 1776, when Lafayette was just 18, he began using his position in the Musketeers to lobby King Louis XVI to send him to the British colonies in North America. Lafayette was already known in his personal circles for his own like desire for glory, and cast himself as, quote, an Enlightenment idealist who'd set out on a new world adventure after hearing tales of the revolution, end quote. So why Lafayette did this, though, is like a matter of some historical debate. First of all, historians aren't totally sure where Lafayette would have come to Enlightenment idealism. He was well-educated the way that any noble orphan in France might have been, but he wasn't particularly well-read. When he moved to Paris, even after his marriage, he spent most of his time with other aristocrats partying, not debating philosophy. Laurent Zaccini, who recently came out with a biography of Lafayette called, fittingly, Lafayette, theorizes instead that Lafayette's Enlightenment education came from his secret membership in the Freemasons. As Adam Gopnik writes in The New Yorker, quote, Lafayette caroused, but carousing can carry a credo. Historians tend to downplay any historical figure's association with Freemasonry because of the whole national treasure debacle, but it was, quote, a crucial vessel for Enlightenment thought. Masonic ideals stressed fraternity, liberty, and above all, the centrality of merit, represented by artisans and artists more than aristocrats, end quote. There's evidence that at least part of Lafayette's journey was facilitated by his membership in this brotherhood. His welcome to the U.S. was led by other members. Then I point this out because it seems like Lafayette's love for the revolution was less about the theory and practice of it and more about the utopian idealism of equality and freedom. As we'll see, he didn't bring the same system of government governance that the Americans chose to France. 
Some people claim that he wanted to fight for glory, and some people say it was indirectly to avenge his father's death. I think both those things can be true. People are complex, after all. But I also think there was a genuine sense of like love for all people equally that drove both his crowsing and his affairs and his revolutionary spirit. I think it's all tied up in a genuine affection for people. He might have done very well in the 1960s bohemian free love movement, you know? There is evidence, however, that he might have had more Shakespearean inspiration. Um, there's some evidence that in August 1775, Lafayette had had dinner with the Duke of Gloucester, King George III's younger brother. The Duke had recently been censured by the King over his choice of bride, and if we know anything about English history, it's that royal siblings hate being told who to marry. In a fit of pique and probably a little tipsy, at dinner, the Duke had railed against George III's heavy-handed treatment of the Americans and praised the American efforts at the Battle of Lexington and Concord just a couple months before. So remember when I said that Lafayette's father being killed by the English would matter? Here it is. He probably believed already in liberty and equality, after all, those are things he fought for his whole life. But some people believe that this dinner also lit the fire of revenge in him. He apparently wrote in a letter, quote, From that hour, I could think of nothing but this enterprise, and I resolved to go to Paris at once to make further inquiries, end quote. I think it's worth noting that Lafayette was as much about revolting about against the spiritual power of the Catholic Church as he was against autocratic kingship. He was a fan of Franz Mesmer, the hypnotist we get the word mesmerizing from. Lafayette went to many of Mesmer's demonstrations, which were, quote, as vital a rebellion against a neatly regimented view of the mind as was anything in Voltaire, end quote. When Lafayette crossed the ocean to go to America, Mesmer advised him to clutch the masts of the ship to avoid seasickness. There is, however, a fun theory that Lafayette's entire venture was, quote, an elaborate scheme in which Lafayette was being used by an officially defunct but apparently still quite active spy service, Le Secret du Roi. In this scenario, the Comte de Broglie, the ex-head of Le Secret, planned to exploit Lafayette's expedition to pave the way for his own arrival as sort of a generalissimo of the American armies which lacked battle-tested leaders, end quote. Whether or not Lafayette knew of this scheme is less clear. He might have simply been a pawn. I'm going to guess that since I've never heard of the Comte de Broglie before researching this episode, it didn't really work, though. Um, and I guess it's less of like a fun theory and more of like a weird conspiracy, but still, uh, it, is, it is one theory of why Lafayette ended up in America. And of course, it's undermined by a very different story that Lafayette was defying orders by going across the Atlantic. Apparently, Louis XVI was in no mood to tangle with George uh, III and forbade any Frenchman from giving assistance to the rebels across the ocean. In this version of the story, Lafayette bought his own ship, hired a crew, and sailed across against direct orders. By the time he arrived in the U.S. in the summer of 1777, no matter how it happened, he was there, um, Lafayette ran on, quote, amiability and instinct. He, quote, sorted good people from bad people by how they struck him on first encounter. And amazingly, he was almost always right. He went to Philadelphia and presented himself to the Continental Congress to receive a commission, but Congressman James Lovell apparently refused to meet with him because, quote, Americans were tired of ambitious Frenchmen seeking glory. But upon realizing how wealthy and well-connected Lafayette actually was, and recognizing his sincere support for the American cause, Lovell recommended Lafayette's appointment as a major general, end quote. Lafayette proceeded on to Valley Forge, where he teamed up with the Prussian Baron de Steuben, um, to re-energize the beleaguered revolutionary troops. Which, I mean, it all sounds great, but the 19-year-old had no actual combat experience. So there's some evidence that he wasn't actually that great of a commander. 
according to Gopnik, Lafayette was, quote, always proposing actions with little strategic point. Let's take the West Indies, fight the British in Rhode Island, launch a raid on Ireland and Northern England. Uh, what Washington on the whole grasped, but what Lafayette did not, is that in a war of national... In a national war of liberation, the trick is to wait out the invader, which requires the ability to sustain a certain casualty rate without losing your army, end quote. It was later revealed that Congress had largely given Lafayette his title as an honorific, a thank you for funds that he probably donated. They had not intended for him to command anyone, but no one seems to have told Lafayette that. Two weeks after he arrived at George Washington's side, Washington sent a letter to Benjamin Harrison, a Virginian in Congress, wondering what the heck he was supposed to do with this untrained teen. He wrote, quote, What line of conduct am I am to pursue to comply with Congress's design and his expectations? I know no more than the child unborn and beg to be instructed, he raged. End quote. However, Lafayette did have one key role. He was Washington's connection to France. In the end, quote, the French war engine won the battles. At Saratoga, it was the French artillery that made the difference. At Yorktown, the French fleet, which Lafayette Circle had helped cajole into joining the struggle, proved decisive in the end. Lafayette had done much of the negotiating for French aid while he was on leave in France in 1779. He came back to the U.S. in 1780 on a ship called the Hermione, which remains famous for its role in the revolution. Lafayette also charmed Washington, as he charmed almost everyone he met. In fact, by the end of the same month that Washington fired off that letter complaining, Lafayette was living in Washington's house, a member of his quote-unquote family of military aides, riding by his side on parade and in battle. When Lafayette was shot in the calf and injured during his first real battle at Brandywine Creek in September 1777, he was treated by Washington's personal physician and watched over by Washington himself. The general apparently told doctors, quote, treat him as if he were my son, end quote. Biographer Douglas Southall Freeman wrote, Never during the revolution was there so speedy and complete a conquest of the heart of Washington. How did Lafayette do it? History has no answer. The dominating theory is a pretty simple one, though. Washington saw in Lafayette the son he never had, and Lafayette found in Washington a long-lost father. However, Smithsonian Magazine really questions this. Washington was not known to ever regret not having a child of his own. He had helped raise Martha Washington's two children from another marriage. And despite the close relationship between Washington and Alexander Hamilton in Lin-Manuel Miranda's show, the historical Washington was not known to be fatherly to Hamilton, yet another orphan who had lost his father in infancy. In fact, Hamilton, quote, found Washington so peremptory that he demanded to be reassigned, end quote. Hamilton later bet Governor Morris dinner if, quote, he would clap Washington on the shoulder and say how great it was to see him again. When Morris complied, Washington simply and without a word removed Morris's hand from the sleeve of his coat and froze him with a stare, end quote. So we really don't know the cause of their great friendship, but it must have been very meaningful to Lafayette. In 1779, when he was on leave in France for a year, he named his only son Georges Washington Louis Gilbert de Lafayette. Our French teenager learned how to be a good commander quite quickly. In the run-up to Yorktown, Washington ordered Lafayette to move his troops south to defend Virginia. Lafayette's men immediately began to mutiny and desert. And instead of trying to impose order through force or threat, he actually told them that they were free to leave. However, ahead of them, quote, lay a hard road, great danger, and a superior army determined on their destruction. He, for one, meant to face that army, but anyone who did not wish to fight could simply apply to leave to return to camp, which would be granted. 
Given the option of fighting or declaring themselves to be unpatriotic cowards, Lafayette's men stopped deserting, and several deserters actually returned. Lafayette rewarded his men by spending 2,000 pounds of his own money to buy desperately needed clothing, shorts, shoes, hats, and blankets, but it was his appeal to their pride that mattered the most." End quote. There's an interesting anecdote from Yorktown that I think says a lot about Lafayette's character. Whether or not he had joined the revolution for personal glory, by the siege of Yorktown in 1781, he had clearly moved past that motivation. He and his troops arrived at Yorktown first and managed to corner British forces, quote, precisely because Lafayette did not attack while Lord Cornwallis painted himself into the corner from which there would be no escape, end quote. In fact, when Francois-Joseph-Paul Marquis de Grasse-Tilly, the admiral of the French fleet, arrived in Chesapeake Bay, he and Lafayette conferred and agreed that they could probably take on Cornwallis themselves. They didn't need to wait. Lafayette would have known that he'd be remembered with much more glory by attacking instead of waiting for Rochambeau and Washington. But he waited. When Washington arrived, Lafayette only asked that he be allowed to continue commanding his troops, admitting, quote, the strongest attachment to them. After the Battle of Yorktown, when the war was basically decided, Lafayette returned to France, where he received a hero's welcome. Once known for his carousing and partying, he picked that reputation right back up when he got home, splitting his stay between his wife Adrienne and his new mistress, Charlotte Gabrielle Isel Elisabeth Aglii, Duchess of Honolstein. She was a lady-in-waiting to the Duchess de Chartres, and um, Aglii, as she went by, was, quote, an admirer who had watched his rise as a public figure with growing interest and had become his mistress that spring, end quote. Lafayette, contradictorily both hating court life and wanting royal approval, had actually been pursuing Aglii since his disastrous introduction at court, but she had rebuffed him for years. Not because she was married, her husband Philippe Antoine served the Duc de Chartres, a rather dissolute man, quote, fond of making his home life as complicated as possible, and uh, openly in love with Aglii. When she did eventually consent to the affair with Lafayette, Philippe Antoine made no objection to his beautiful wife's pecadillos, but her family was less pleased. They made their disapproval obvious, which was actually rather unfashionable of them at the time, um, especially considered that Aglaé was something of an it girl in 18th century France. The affair, however, despite its like long lead up, was not a happy one. Versailles' gossip mill may have been one of the worst in history, and they mocked the young couple mercilessly until they broke up. Her previous lover, the Duc de Chartres, was particularly vicious in his quest to take them both down. After a year, Aglaé begged Lafayette to end the affair, and his letter back to her is pretty gut-wrenching. I've quoted a little bit of it here. You are too cruel, my dear Aglaé. You know the torments of my heart. You know that it is wrenched in two by love and duty, and now you ask me to come to a decision in the matter of this wretched resolution. You have so often seen me coming to a decision and then finding myself incapable of abiding by it. A hundred times I have thought it all out and made myself a hundred promises, and a hundred times, as soon as I have seen you and touched you, I have realized how weak I am. I will silence my heart. As you and your wisdom have foreseen, I am more master of myself in a letter than in a conversation. It would have been kinder to spare me the misery of making the decision, but since that is what you wish, you may set your mind at rest, my dear. What must be, must be. It took me a long time to make up my mind to write, but this is what you want, what your family wants, and for you, everything depends on it. Why should you stand in need of my opinion? Could a man of honor advise you to ruin yourself? No, my friend, whatever the cost to myself, I counsel you to follow what reason dictates and what honor imposes upon me. So be at rest, since duty forbids us to be happy together. 
As to the stupid things you are being told, I would not deprive your family of those ineffectual weapons. But at least my heart is my own, dear Aglaï. All that you are, all that I owe you, justifies my love, and nothing, not even you, can keep me from adoring you. End quote. As beautiful as that breakup letter is, and can I just interrupt myself to say, let's bring back breakup letters, ghosting on people is so 2019. As beautiful and moving as all this is, let's not forget that Lafayette had his wife waiting for him at home, plus the love of yet another of French society's great beauties, Diane Adelaide de Damas d'Antigny, waiting in the wings to be his next mistress. And also, he started pursuing her way back in 1774 with the very mercenary intentions of using her to make himself popular. So while he might have been very sad over this, he certainly had options to fall back on. And he also wasn't innocent in this whole enterprise. Um, this very public affair ruined her though. It was one affair too far. Her family really disapproved. Her mother wrote to Adelaide de Pentievre, the Duchess of Chartres, telling on her own daughter and encouraging the Duchess to ban Aglaï from court over this. Her own mother, her own mother did this. Aglaï ended up, quote, selling all of her jewels and worldly goods and voluntarily retreating to a convent before her family could shut her up in one. Her husband could not prevent her from going and so decided to make her a generous, a generous annual allowance, which she mostly spent on alms and charity work. It's a sad ending for her. Yeah. Well, Lafayette had some comparative downtime in the mid-1880s, uh, but he didn't spend it sitting around. He began hosting salons at his house to encourage Republican conversation. He rejoined the French military and acted as a diplomat, organizing trade agreements with Thomas Jefferson. In 1784, he visited the U.S. to see the country he'd helped create. He visited Washington at Mount Vernon and specifically encouraged Washington to end slavery immediately. Washington, the owner of 123 enslaved people, obviously wasn't super open to this conversation as much as he might have said he was. Probably while he was in North America in 1785, Lafayette decided to try to prove that he was right about ending slavery. And this is an experiment that doesn't get talked about a lot. Like this is the first time I'd ever heard of it was while I was researching this episode. Um, but Lafayette bought land along the Oyapok River in the French colony of Cayenne, now called French Guiana. Uh, the plantation grew clove and cinnamon trees and came with around 70 enslaved Africans. Lafayette changed things. He began paying them for their labor and forbade anyone from selling the slaves. He hoped that by paying people, keeping families together, providing better living conditions, and educating the children, the birth rate would rise and infant mortality would decrease, which could, at least, end the need for the slave trade. Unfortunately, his experiment was doomed by the chaos that would begin in France just a few years later, but I imagine he wrote to Washington about the experiment and any progress that he made. When he got back to Paris in 1785, he sent his friend George Washington seven large French hounds as a gift. Washington, apparently, was a passionate dog breeder, and he wanted to breed his own pack of English foxhounds with a larger hunting dog. The breeding combination led to the American foxhound, which the American Kennel Club recognized as a breed in 1886. When the French Revolution began in 1789, it was somewhat inevitable that Lafayette would be chosen to lead. He did, after all, have experience in a successful revolt, something that most Parisians did not. He was made the commander of the Paris Militia, which eventually became the National Guard. He also, interestingly, quote, designed the guards' uniforms, combining the red and blue colors of Paris with the white of the Bourbon kings, signifying a potential marriage of popular sentiment and royal lineage, and providing what are still the colors of the French flag, end quote. Lafayette and his troops saved Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette from the crowd that invaded Versailles on October 6, 1789, an act that would cast suspicion on him later, unfortunately. 
They were imprisoned in Paris and hostages of the revolution thereafter, but Lafayette believed that they were needed alive. After the storming of the Bastille in July of 1789, Lafayette gifted George Washington the key to the Bastille. You can actually still see it if you go to Mount Vernon today. It may seem a little strange for him to have gifted it to Washington, but it goes back to that friendship that they developed. Lafayette believed there was, quote, no better person to receive the symbol of the end of ancient tyranny than the man who fought so bravely to establish the United States, end quote. Lafayette is considered the leader of the moderate phase of the French Revolution from 1789 to 1791. I'm sure there are entire podcasts out there dedicated to all of the political maneuvering of the French Revolution, so I'm not even going to attempt to explain it all here, but I'll stick to what Lafayette did. You might have heard of the Declarations of the Rights of Man and the Citizen. It was a revolutionary document credited to the entire National Assembly. Grounded in Enlightenment ideals and guided by dead French philosophers like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the document called for a system based on meritocracy, freedom of speech, and representative government, among other things. Lafayette wrote it with Thomas Jefferson's help. In fact, Jefferson never wavered in his support of Lafayette in France. He warned Lafayette of the dangers of republicanism and suggested that the French look toward the English Constitution instead of the American one for guidance on how to structure their own constitutional monarchy. According to Britannica, Lafayette, quote, supported measures that transferred power from the aristocracy to the bourgeoisie, but he feared that further democratization would encourage the lower classes to attack property rights, end quote. Lafayette was one of the leading voices calling for a constitutional monarchy in which the king retained veto power and the ability to appoint ministers, but the National Assembly played a part in actually creating laws. I'm going to quote this New Yorker article again here, kind of a long one this time. Quote, one reason that Lafayette remains a controversial figure in France is that, despite praising the Constitution of the United States as the most perfect system that has ever existed, he thought it was impractical to implant such pure republicanism in France. His basic insight was not very different from de Gaulle's in founding the Fifth Republic around an exceptionally powerful presidency. France, an ancient, highly centralized country with a strong taste for ritual, seems to require a visible symbol of order at its center. Lafayette's dedication to the practical ideal of a constitutional monarchy for France met with repeated failure, however, partly because the Republicans could never entirely accept the necessity of a figurehead king, and partly because the kings he tried to counsel could never really accept being figureheads. This put him in an awkward and, at times, near-fatal position. A radical to the royalists, a royalist to the radicals, he was simply a realist in his relations with both." End quote. In the middle of the debates around the Constitution and powers of the king, on June 20th, 1791, Lafayette's military group, the National Guard, accidentally let the king and his family escape. The king is quoted as gloating, Lafayette must feel quite embarrassed, but as you probably remember from history class, this escape ended badly for the royal family. Lafayette took the blame for this, though it wasn't entirely his fault. Jacobin radicals like George Danton started calling for Lafayette's head in addition to the king's. The next month, a crowd of protesters gathered at the Champ de Mars in Paris to demand that the king abdicate. Lafayette's guards opened fire, killing or wounding around 50 demonstrators. This, combined with the escape in June, hugely damaged the popularity Lafayette had enjoyed for a while. He ended up resigning from the guard a few months later and was appointed commander of the army at Metz, where the, uh, where the French troops were fighting Austrian encroachment. Lafayette and others, like Thomas Paine, were against executing the king. They saw it as a slide into cruelty, away from freedom. Twice, Lafayette left French military fronts against Prussia and Austria to return to Paris and denounce this Jacobin radicalism, but it seemed like there was no stopping what came next. 
The execution of the king kicked off the reign of terror when people like Danton and Maximilian Robespierre took over the revolution and began killing people more or less indiscriminately. It became clear that Lafayette was going to have to flee for his life, and in August of 1792, he fled to Austria, hoping for sanctuary. Instead, he was arrested and held in prison for five years. The conditions of Lafayette's imprisonment were unusually harsh for an aristocrat, though I don't know that today's prisons are any better or worse. For months at a time, he was confined to his cell without sunlight, books, or friends. He would later be against solitary confinement, saying he, quote, had not found it to be the means of reformation since he was in prison for wishing to revolutionize the people against despotism and aristocracy and passed his solitude in thinking upon it without coming out corrected, end quote. Once again, he was right. Decades of research in the 20th and 21st centuries have proven that solitary confinement is terrible for your brain and makes people, quote, more likely to develop anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts, and psychosis. Now, remember Lafayette's wife, Adrienne? Well, when the early part of the revolution took up most of Lafayette's attention, he asked her to look over his plantation in French Guiana, and she took it up happily. She helped establish a nearby seminary to look after the re religious welfare of the paid enslaved people that worked there. I realize that paid enslaved is a confounding phrase. I just truly don't know more about whether these people were allowed to leave if they saved up money and wanted to. Of all the things Lafayette did, this experiment is paid very little attention to. Unfortunately, as the revolution took a radical turn and Lafayette was imprisoned, all of his property was confiscated, including this land in French Guiana. The people were sold as slaves once again, and we don't know what became of them, unfortunately. On top of Lafayette's imprisonment, though, Adrienne had other things to worry about. As part of the aristocracy, Adrienne and her family were imprisoned. Her sister, mother, and grandmother were all killed on the same evening and made to watch each other's deaths. She and their children made it through all of this more or less okay. Her children escaped prison entirely, but Adrienne was held in prison for a while. Rumor has it that it was the intervention of Elizabeth Monroe, wife of American diplomat to France, James Monroe, who saved Adrienne. Apparently, Mrs. Monroe showed up at the prison the day before Adrienne was due to be executed and loudly announced that she expected to be able to visit her again the next day. Desperate to not ruin their relationship with James Monroe by killing the wife of an American hero, they decided to send her into exile instead. She was released in January 1795. Adrienne made her way to Olmutz, where her husband was imprisoned, with their two daughters, Anastasie and Virginie. Their son, George, was living in the U.S., Somehow, she convinced the Austrian authorities to let her stay, and the four of them lived together as a family in some prison barracks. But despite the bad conditions, Constance Wright, in her biography Madame de Lafayette, writes of this as a good experience for Adrienne. Quote, there was no career or adventure to beckon him across the seas, no dangerous duties to the state to call him out at all hours, no mistresses, no friends, or henchmen clamoring for their share of his attention. He was hers and hers alone. End quote. They lived together this way until he was released in seven, September 1797. They remained happy together afterward, it seems. Somewhat surprisingly, it was thanks to Napoleon's rise that Lafayette was released. In 1797, Napoleon beat the Austrian army in the Battle of Rivoli and demanded the release of all imprisoned French citizens, including Lafayette. Gopnik suggests that Napoleon might also have hoped to, quote, lure Lafayette back into his service, but Lafayette retired instead. Whatever he might have personally felt about it, Napoleon seems to have not minded. As long as Lafayette left him alone, he would leave Lafayette alone. And maybe feeling burned by how wrong things had gone in the French Revolution or needing to recover from his years-long imprisonment in Austria, 
Lafayette and his family lived peacefully in a chateau for several years. He apparently became a gentleman farmer and, quote, clung to his status as a private citizen, even turning down an offer from Thomas Jefferson to govern the territory of the Louisiana Purchase, end quote. It was around this time, while Lafayette and Washington were both retired from politics, that the letters they had long been exchanging took on a sour note. Napoleon was becoming very authoritarian and trying to take over all of Europe, which frustrated Washington to watch it. Washington had once said that the United States should never, quote, unsheath the sword except in self-defense, and was furious with what he saw as, quote, military adventurism. He wrote to Lafayette ranting about it, and Lafayette wrote back a kind of defensive reply. And those were the last letters they ever exchanged. Washington died soon after in 1799. Eventually, Lafayette understood Washington's point, though, I mean, he would never fully agree with him, as we'll see, but it was far too late to, to apologize to his old friend. Sometime in 1807, Lafayette's wife, Adrienne, became very sick, something described as, quote, dissolution of the blood, um, which looked like fever, swelling of the extremities, and mental confusion that would come and go quite quickly. Out of curiosity, I tried to see if anyone has developed a theory about what might have been causing this illness in Adrienne, and I couldn't find much. She might have been suffering from dropsy, we call it heart failure today. It's characterized by general swelling and was treated with bloodletting. Heart failure is also associated with transient ischemic attacks, what some people call mini-strokes, and that could explain her periods of confusion that would clear up. Um, the fever doesn't fit in with the typical symptom list of dropsy or heart failure, but I suppose it's possible that she could have been catching infections more easily if she already had a weakened immune system from the heart failure. I don't know, There's this is not a cohesive theory, it's something that I just kind of looked up. Um, in any case, whatever the illness was, Adrienne passed away on Christmas Eve of 1807. Before she died, she told Lafayette, quote, If you don't think you are loved enough, you will have to blame God for my shortcomings, for he made me what I am. What a fate to have been your wife. I have loved you in the Christian sense, in the worldly sense, and passionately. End quote. Lafayette was so devastated by her death that he kept everything as she'd left it and walled off her bedroom so visitors couldn't simply wander in. It's said that he spent every Christmas Eve there until he died. Lafayette continued to stay out of politics until 1815, when at 58 years old, he was elected to the National Assembly, just in time to, quote, put the weight of his revolutionary era credentials behind the call for Napoleon to abdicate after Waterloo, end quote. When Lucien Bonaparte, Napoleon's brother, denounced the Assembly's attempt as weak, Lafayette silenced him. And in, in an incredibly memorable moment, Lafayette said, quote, by what right do you dare accuse the nation of want of perseverance in the emperor's interests? The nation has followed him on the fields of Italy, across the sands of Egypt and the plains of Germany, across the frozen deserts of Russia. The nation has followed him in 50 battles, in his defeats, and in his victories. And in doing so, we have to mourn the blood of three million Frenchmen. End quote. In 1824, Lafayette returned to the United States for the first time in over 30 years at the invitation of President James Monroe. His closest friend Hamilton had been dead for 20 years, and his friend and mentor George Washington had been dead for 25. The tour apparently included very emotional stops at their graves. The U.S. had moved on to the many problems that plagued it in the decades after the Revolution, but Lafayette was still greeted like a hero and a rock star everywhere he went. I mean, for context, 80,000 people greeted him at New York Harbor, only 4,000 people greeted the Beatles in 1964. Lafayette alone was more popular than the Beatles at the height of Beatlemania. Still truly committed to liberty, Lafayette argued for abolition basically anytime he could. 
His traveling companion, Auguste Le- Levasseur, wrote that he, quote, never missed an opportunity to defend the right which all men without exception have to liberty, end quote. Lafayette and Levasseur left the United States sure that slavery would collapse under public opinion. They couldn't predict how Andrew Jackson would rise as part of a, prop- of a populist pro-slavery movement. Lafayette's political work wasn't done. In 1830, the French revolted again, this time against Napoleon. Lafayette was called out of retirement to lead the Republican forces. He was actually encouraged to take power himself, but declined, quote, hoping against hope and against all reason, many of his exasperated chroniclers have believed, that a new king from another dynasty, in this case from the supposedly populist Orléans family, might function as a national symbol while expanding popular sovereignty, end quote. In fact, Lafayette's reputation was so strong at this point that it said he confirmed the new king of France, Louis-Philippe, by simply, quote, wrapping him in a tricolor flag and embracing him, coronation by a Republican kiss, as Chateaubriand called it, end quote. The plan failed. Just a few years later, Lafayette would publicly denounce the king for turning his back on reforms. Louis-Philippe never forgave Lafayette for this. He saw it as a betrayal. Lafayette would go on to be the inspiration and often invited leader, almost kind of like a consultant, sort of, for other liberal revolutions in Spain, Portugal, Belgium, and Poland. While this is something Americans tend to love about him, Lafayette's vision Lafayette's vision of democracy for all is viewed with heavy skepticism in France. It goes back to the differences between modern French and American cultures. The U.S. has frequently intervened in revolutions around the world, dropping in soldiers to support democracy or prop up despots as the U.S. government sees fit. Of course, Americans like the side of Lafayette, right? The French, on the other hand, rightly question Lafayette's move as, quote, elitist vision, vaguely imperialistic. France, of course, has her own demons with imperialism and colonialism, but they address that part of their history very different than the U.S. does. Nevertheless, I find it incredibly interesting that Lafayette is so revered in the U.S. for his work in the American Revolution, but doesn't receive the same love in France. It seems like every major American city has a monument of some sort to him, whether it's the ubiquitous Lafayette Park everywhere, or an elementary school, or, you know, anything. However, he's not beloved in France. There's a whole New Yorker article by Adam Gopnik, who I mentioned earlier, called Why Don't the French Celebrate Lafayette, which I relied on a lot for this episode. In it, Gopnik describes Lafayette's fame in the US as, quote, baffling to the French, even though France is where he was born. Gopnik points to the recent French biography, Lafayette, by Lawrence Cicini to explain why. He was, quote, too non-ideological to attract much analysis. He never theorized his experience, which is quite an insult to the French. People suggest that he's never had the same reputation in France as in the US because, well, he never wrote a book, and the French love nothing more than a writer. I mean, Americans even paid for a statue to memorialize Lafayette inside the Louvre to thank him for the role he played in the U.S. war against the British. And the French basically said no thank you and put it out in the woods where it's, quote, nearly invisible among the trees. I mean, there may be nothing more insulting than literally putting a statue outside in the woods so you don't have to look at it. This disconnect also lies in the incredibly different ways France and America see the American Revolution. In the US, we see it as a grassroots struggle against an autocratic power with all the resources in the world, and the French aid as sort of like a nice assistance toward the end when things look dark. In France, that's not the story at all. They see the American Revolution, the they see the American revolutionaries as akin to insurgents and their assistance of that insurgency as merely a small moment in the centuries of wars and jockeying between France and England. For a lot of the French at the time, it wasn't so much about us as it was about getting in another dig in England. 
I started off with mentioning Alexander Hamilton, and I want to bring him up again here. The two were close friends and have very different legacies in the U.S. and abroad. Gopnik in The New Yorker writes that Hamilton, quote, wrote down principles of government in such a crisp and classical style that we read them still, end quote. An incredibly important skill, and also why Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote lyrics like, why do you write like you're running out of time? For Hamilton, it seems the act of writing the revolution was just as important as the spirit of it. But for Lafayette, who didn't learn Enlightenment philosophy from books but from brotherhood, writing wasn't as important as experiencing the revolution. It's a little unfortunate for us as historians because it means we don't get a ton of his internal monologue, his rationale behind decisions, except for what has been preserved in letters. Gopnik writes, Yet the less coherent romantic imagination, of which Lafayette is an early and ideal example, can sometimes accomplish by empathy and affection and warmth what ideology cannot. History shows us no more lovable a man than Lafayette. He didn't create a utopian state, or start a reign of terror, or conquer another country, or take power in his own country and lay down the law. But nobody did more to help secure French liberty rather than merely imagine it, and nobody did more for the best side of the American democratic ideal. Lafayette didn't write a philosophical book, or think up a system, or even win a big battle. He was just a terrific friend to all good causes." End quote. Lafayette died in 1834 at the age of 76 of pneumonia. Because Louis-Philippe and his supporters were still so angry with his quote-unquote betrayal of the Bourbon dynasty, he had to be carried to his grave, quote, under heavy guard, and no eulogies were permitted. As he wished, though, he was buried next to his wife using dirt from Bunker Hill that he and his son had collected during Lafayette's trip back ten years before. Well, that's the story of the Marquis de Lafayette. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Unruly Figures. If you did, tell a friend about it. You can also let me know your thoughts by following me on Twitter and Instagram as Unruly Figures. Thank you to everyone who has liked and subscribed to Unruly Figures. I'm told that this is where credits go, but Unruly Figures is researched, written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, all by myself. So if you are into supporting independent artists, please share this with at least one person you know. If you're feeling really generous, rate this show and leave a review for Unruly Figures on Apple Podcasts. It really does help other people find this work. If you want to subscribe, you can do that wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Unruly Figures. Come hang out. If you want to see photos related to today's episode, come find this episode's transcript on Substack. It'll be full of photos. While there, you can also subscribe for ad-free episodes and behind-the-scenes content. That's all going to be at unrulyfigures.substack.com. That's U-N-R-U-L-Y-F-I-G-U-R-E-S dot S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. Until next time, stay unruly. Thank you.